Getting teams to click or gel is some of the most rewarding work that you can do as a leader. To release those elephants in the room, to free them up, and to find that powerful magic that comes together when teams start working well together. There is so much human potential available if we can unlock the power of teams. Hello and welcome to Unset at Work. I'm your host, Catherine Stagg-Macy, an executive team coach, interested in the conversations that we don't have at work, you know, the hard ones, the funky ones, the crunchy ones, the forgotten ones, the ones that we didn't even know we needed to have. And today's topic is about teams and particularly what makes for a high-performing team. What do we mean by a high-performing team? And I want to break that down for you. Because every leader I speak to says, I want my team to be high-performing. But when I ask for what that means to them, the responses are very widely. Like people don't really know what that means. You know, the dream of being a great team is real, but most of us lack the language of what that means around behaviors or how it's measured or how would we know if we even got to this magical place of high performance. And you and I are part of teams in every day of our lives, whether we're part of a leadership team, a sports team, you know, a team organizing local elections. It's how we get stuff done in the world. But putting people together on a task is just the beginning. And we all know from experience that people don't just necessarily get along because they're on the same team. There's differences in working styles and personalities. Uh, and even an understanding of what it is that we're doing on the team can, can differ. And just to put this in some context, there are something like 2,300 research papers on the topic of team performance and their effectiveness. And that was a, a data point I got from the Oxford Review. 2,300 papers on team performance. So it's, it's no wonders that most of us really struggle to understand what models to use. There are just so many diverse opinions and models about how to measure team performance. So in this episode, I'm going to walk you through one of the pervasive myths around team performance and how to get there. And then I'm going to share with you three models around team effectiveness. I'm using team effectiveness and performance interchangeably. These are three models that are fairly popular, that I hear a lot being used or being referenced. And I'll share with you the broader criticisms of each of the models, as well as what I like about that model, if I like it at all. And then I'll finish off with giving you the model that I prefer and how I apply it. I've got seven years now of team coaching under my belt and many, many years of lived experience of being on different teams. So this episode really is just sort of a manifestation of me trying to make sense in my own mind of this topic of you know, team effectiveness, team performance, and how do we know, how do we measure that? So if we start with a million dollar question, like what makes a team high performing a team? And this is where you get to one of the most pervasive myths that exist out there that I want to knock on the head. And that's this mistake that we think that if we bring together the smart people, individual contributors who are all smart, we put them on a team, they we end up with a smart team. Completely not true. I want to share with you a little thought experiment that comes from the great management thinker, Russell Ackhoff, to kind of make the point. So let's imagine there are uh, a thousand types of cars out there. And I'm I know almost nothing about cars, so if I get any of this wrong, don't come after me. It's just a metaphor. So let's imagine we buy each one of those 1,000 cars and we bring them into this huge garage. We have 1,000 
different types of cars in this garage, this warehouse. And we bring in a hundred of the best mechanics and we say to them, with this range of cars in front of you, create the best car. So they start with a problem to find which car has the best component parts. So they start with like, well, which car has the best engine? Let's say it's the Rolls Royce. Which car has the best transmission? Let's go with Mercedes and so on, right? One by one, the mechanics find, they decide which car has the best part. They take it out and put it in the corner of this warehouse. And when they've done that, we say to them, well, construct the best car with the best parts. And of course, you you can see where this is going. Do we get the best car? Of course we don't. We don't, probably don't even get a car, right? Because the the parts aren't going to fit together. It's the way the parts fit together that make for a car and make for a great car, not how they perform separately. And yet, this is how we approach teams and organizations. We look at the individual component parts and put them together and think, you know, a bunch of smart people together is going to make a smart team. So I think this car metaphor is a fantastic way of letting us know where to put our attention as someone leading a team. The focus is on the connection between people. It's the relationships in the team. That's where we should put in our focus if we want the team to improve performance. And yes, table stakes are that the individual contributors are good at what they do. They don't have to be the best. You can, you know, we can talk about that. I don't think they have to be the best at what they do. The magic comes in what happens when you put people together. Let's walk through three of the more popular models around team performance and effectiveness. And I expect you would have heard at least one or two of them. The first one is Tuckman's stages of team development. And this is created by a guy called Bruce Tuckman in the 60s. He's a psychologist and he proposes a development model. So these are stages, these are linear stages that teams go through. Uh, forming, storming, norming, and performing. So this idea of stage one is forming, people team gets together and they start to get to know each other. They're they're a little cautious, keep their cards themselves because they don't really know each other. People aren't that committed to the team and, and like why should they be, right? Second stage is storming, as in the name, people start to open up share their preferred working styles, but now things get a bit crunchy because you know, the differences become more apparent. And there's probably some degree of conflict or crunchiness um, and certainly problem solving hasn't been worked out because of the differences. People are sitting in their different approaches rather than a joint approach. In the norming stage three, the norming phase is the team in his model starts to come together, working to one sort of collective goal, and finally, performing, you know, the ultimate destination, sort of the peak experience for every team. There's trust, everyone's motivated. There's very much a sort of we versus I orientation. You know, we are doing something rather than I. And again, the, 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 this is the idea of the pinnacle of team performance, the performing place. So let's talk about the criticisms of this model. The model proposes linear stages, and it's just not true. My experience as a team coach is the same. It, it isn't. It isn't true. There is no empirical evidence that the teams go through stages in this way. In fact, the one research that I found said that only 2% of teams go through all four phases. And if you think about it, teams aren't stable. Like, there are always changes in the team membership. Somebody's coming, somebody's going. Either they're leaving the organization or they're joining the team in a new role or a ro existing role gets replaced by someone else. And those, the seemingly small shifts are always shifting the team dynamic. So there's almost a way that the team is, every time there's a change of team membership, the team goes back 
to the to a version of the forming stage. Part of the team goes back to that place. So it's a little reductive to see it in, in sort of these linear phases. But let me tell you what I like about this. I think this is a really useful tool to work with as yourself as a leader. Uh, I do this in, in one-on-one sessions. You know, we would look at when the when the team leader is struggling to motivate or understand what's going on with the team. We take a step back, look at this model, and say, "Well, where do you think they are? You know, where's the team today in this model?" With that in mind, then there's an interesting conversation, like, "Well, what leadership style do you need to leverage or lean into to make the most of where this team is at?" And if you're interested in leadership styles, uh, check out episode 17. I'll put the link in the show notes about leadership styles. But if we map those styles that I refer to there, which is Goldman's model, onto the different phases, it becomes interesting. So if you take, a f- this, if the team is in the beginning phase of coming together, you're going to need a sort of visionary coaching style to 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 create that shared and collective goal. If the team is in some crunchy storming phase, some stuff's going on, you may need more of an affiliative style. And in the latter phases, maybe you're leaning more into sort of affiliative and democratic style. So I think it's a really useful model to help people see their uh, the need for range in their own leadership styles, depending on where the team is at. So the second model I'm going to share with you here is Lencioni's Dysfunctions of Teams. This is um, created by a, a man called Patrick Lencioni. And the model is a little different from the rest because the, really it's a list of what the team should not have. And the idea that if you know the dysfunction in your team, that enables you to address and to manage the team more effectively. He talks about five dysfunctions. It's a very famous triangle you might have seen that imagine a triangle and from the bottom layer up he's got absence of trust at the bottom fear of conflict lack of commitment avoidance of accountability and inattention to results so this idea of if teams don't trust each other then you can't build anything if they're unable to deal with conflict that's sort of like an elephant in the room and things don't move on if there's any lack of dedication lack of commitment the sort of slow decision-making and d- delays of deadlines. If people aren't able to hold each other to account, this gets in the way. This is one of the dysfunctions he's talking about. And ultimately, if the team is not focused on getting stuff done in attention to results, then they won't reach them. I have a lot of problems with this model, and I'm not alone in this. The criticism of this model is that it's sort of predicated on root cause analysis. So if you find that one dysfunction, smash that dysfunction, the team works. There's never just one reason why a team's not performing or struggling to come together. The other criticism is there's, there's no empirical evidence at all that this model works. It is based on his years of experience uh, rather than any research. But it does sound sensible. I mean, I think that's one of the compelling aspects of this model. That, And I think the considerable marketing machine that's been behind it for years has meant that it it has become a framework for assessment for big names like Bain & Co., use it in their sort of team group coaching in their own clients. So it has a lot of brand awareness around it. And I think my final discomfort with this model is the emphasis that he puts on trust or vulnerability exercises to address issues around trust. So if there is high levels of mistrust in the team, it's there for a reason. And requiring people to share personal stories, which Lencioni's method does, requiring people to share personal stories could backfire really badly. In fact, I think it could actually damage team dynamic even further. 
And it also does this again in, in silo of the organization. If you think about airline crews, you know, who are changing the mix and the makeup change all the time, right? They're not relying on having shared personal information to build trust. Like it's a, it's a reductive approach to say that's the way that we build trust within a team. It, it can work. I'm not against that method at all, but it's to say that's the only way to do it is a little reductive. Airline crews have external structures around them that help facilitate performance without being dependent on any really based trust at all. Airlines might argue that they don't need trust, but rather a clear process and, uh, process and procedures to build trust in the team. What do I like about this model? Well, I, I don't like this model a lot. I'm curious as to its wide use in the industry. I like the concept. I find it, you know, I have read his books and I find them very compelling, but I also find that the concepts of things like trust and conflict and commitment are really open to wide interpretation, but separately are interesting. I have clients who've had other experiences with this model and it seems very helpful. So that's why I've decided to include it in here. The third model I want to share with you is the Google approach. It's less of a model, but rather they identify key attributes. So in 2012, Google set about answering the question of what makes for a great Google team. And they had done that previously to look at what makes for a great Google manager. And in this new project they had, which they called Project Aristotle, they conducted interviews with about 180 Google teams to look for, you know, what made for a great Google team. And their findings was that team effectiveness is less about who is on the team, but rather how the team members interact. So they identify key attributes for a successful team. The first is psychological safety. Second is dependability. Can we count on each other to do high quality work? The third is structure and clarity. Our goals and roles and, and plans clear to each of our team. The fourth is meaning of work. Are we working on something that personally is important for each of us? And the impact of the work, do we fundamentally believe that the work we are doing matters? So they make a big point of psychological safety being probably the most important here. One could argue that that links to Lencioni's trust under, underpinning his model, but that all of them are important aspects of it. The criticisms for others rather of this model is that Google says that how the team interacts is more important than personalities. I'm not sure you can clearly separate them out. As a systemic uh, relationship-based coach, I absolutely agree with the idea of how teams connect. Think back to the car metaphor matters, but to dismiss personality differences, uh, I think, is too simplistic. You know, many of us assume that the people we're working with on the team have a very similar worldview to us until we do personality tests like MBTI or DISC. And it's only then do team members realize and appreciate differences. And I see this time and time again in, in teams. And we will be in on the team with a brilliant jerk, the person who gets away with stuff because they deliver in some way that's valuable to the team. Maybe they sell the most stuff or they do the most consulting, but actually they're a complete jerk in doing that. And it undermines the team. So this idea of sidelining personalities, I think is a little reductive. What I like about this model, I use aspects of this model without ever referring to it explicitly because I think they're really drawing upon bodies of knowledge elsewhere in this work. Psychological safety is a huge determinant of what the team is capable of. This has been made 
famous by Amy Edmondson, that, that idea. It's a misunderstood term, but if we bottom line it, teams build this through exercise like team contracting and ways of working and conflict protocols. So really what you're doing is helping them know what, the, what are the guardrails of how we operate as a team. When it gets hard, what, are we, what agreements are we going to lean into? And that is their starting point around psychological safety. What I also like about this model is this idea of structure and clarity. It's a it's it's a surprisingly common zone of confusion in team. Every team that I've worked with has some degree of confusion over you know what are the stakeholders expect of us or who's doing what in the team and and why, and how do we hold each hold each other to account? So I think that's also a really valuable contribution of this model. So those are the three models that I wanted to share with you, and then I wanted to end here with my way of working, which is a very relational and systems framework. And it weaves in aspects of a lot of models. It's a very weighty body of knowledge that's really aimed at a, at a team coach who's a practitioner just because the depth of knowledge required rather than a team leader. But the aspect that I wanted to share with you is the assessment phase. The first thing I do with any team is to work out where they are and what's really going on for them. And I do this through a series of interviews with their team and their stakeholders that's sort of a real data gathering process. And then I put these insights through a framework to help create a, a team coaching plan. And this is the aspect that I think is applicable for you as a team leader. So really the the framework from Peter Hawkins that I'm, I'm leveraging here is, you know, the team remit, like what's being asked to the team. And this isn't the team answering these questions themselves. This is about the stakeholder expectations of the team as well. What's the team why? Like knowing what is expected of us, what is our mission? Where's the meaning in this for us as individuals? Where's the meaning for this in our team? Does it matter? Do we care? The team how is, you know, what's the operating system? How do we work collaboratively and generatively? How do we understand the sort of dynamics of the team and how do we leverage those dynamics when they're when they're a bit funky? How do we call them out and kind of get back on course? And then the doing. This is the actual moving beyond the how and the why, you know, what are we executing on? How do we interact with the stakeholders? So those sort of four aspects are, are a really useful way of framing or reviewing where the team is at at the moment. And this provides a much more nuanced view of team strengths and challenges, of, of internal relationships and external expectations and the context of what the team is operating and no team is operating alone. Every team is having to operate in some context. And because I keep getting asked, I've put this all into a quiz for you. And you could use it today to unlock your team potential. This quiz is available in the link in the show notes. I'm charging £21 for the quiz, which is given how much value you're going to get from this, I think is a real bargain. I'll talk through the four core disciplines in more detail, leveraging Hawkins' work through answering the quiz is a little extra spreadsheet with a bunch of questions. You answer those questions. It gives you a sense of where you need to focus on performing, improving your team performance. There's 12 strategies I walk through in overcoming some of the team challenges that I've seen. And also it helps you get clear on the role that you can play in addressing your team effectiveness and your team performance. So let's summarize where we've been. We've talked about the major myth around teams, that we've put smart people on a team together and we get a smart team. I've walked you through three models for team performance that are very common and popular, the Tuckman, Lencioni, and Google. And finally, my way of working with teams in the, in the assessment phase, the Hawkins model. I hope 
at this point you realize there is some listener discretion advised. Like there is no perfect model. There is no one singular model that I want you to be looking for. If you find a model, maybe it's one that I once I've mentioned, maybe it's something else. It makes sense to you and is applicable in a way that your team can get behind. So it has some credibility with the team. Then you've got what you need. Getting teams to click or gel is some of the most rewarding work that you can do as a leader. To release those elephants in the room, to free them up and to find that powerful magic that comes together when teams start working well together. There is so much human potential available if we can unlock the power of teams. I do hope you're feeling a bit more resourced in in understanding what to look for around team performance and team effectiveness. And there you have some idea of the role that you can play in taking your team to the next level. That's it for the week. Until next week, signing off. This is your wingwoman, Catherine Stegmacy. 